This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 21 through 24. And as we turn in your Bibles, I want you just to remember this this morning. There is no one better for you than him. That God is the most committed to you more than anyone on earth. There is no one more committed to your good, committed to your joy, committed to your peace, committed to you than him. There is no one who has loved you greater. There is no one who has thought of you more. There is no one who has sacrificed for you more. There is no one with which you are safer than him. And as you come to the word this morning and as we come to the table later today, I I just want to encourage you to lay aside for a moment the distractions of your day, which are real, and the burdens of your heart, which are real, and the heartache that you may be experiencing, which is real, And ask God to speak to you through his word. Ask God to help you see in his word all that he would have for you today. That our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in him who loves us and who's given his life for us. Today in Acts 21 through 24, we're going to see God's sovereignty. We're going to see his ability to work through extraordinary conditions, including evil people. And we're going to see the mercy and justice of God prevail like we always see it in. There is no force of darkness and no sin, and no level of immorality that cannot be conquered by the purposes of God. And as you leave today, I hope that your eyes will be fixed on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of your faith and mine. This morning, we're going to see Paul's determination to be faithful to Jesus and his calling on his life. And as we begin this morning, I want to remind you, Paul has already suffered. He has journeyed many, many miles He has seen miracles, including the miracle of his own salvation. He has faced great opposition. He has suffered and has been beaten and flogged. He has faced great physical, emotional pain, and Jesus has been with him the whole time. Um, In Acts 21, we're going to see some commonalities between Paul and Jesus. And one commentator made some helpful connections, and I want to preload those for you before we read Acts chapter 21. David Guzik says this, Like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of disciples. Like Jesus, Paul had opposition from hostile Jews who plotted against his life. Like Jesus, Paul made and received three successive predictions um, of his coming sufferings in Jerusalem, including being handed over to the Gentiles. Like Jesus, Paul had followers who tried to discourage him from going to Jerusalem and the fate that awaited him there. Like Jesus, Paul declared his readiness to lay down his life. Like Jesus, Paul was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it. Like Jesus, Paul expressed his abandonment to the will of God. Like Jesus, Paul came to Jerusalem to offer something. Like Jesus, Paul was unjustly arrested on the basis of a false accusation. Like Jesus, Paul was arrested alone, but none of his companions were. Like Jesus, Paul heard the mob crying out, away with him, away with him. Like Jesus, the Roman officer handled Paul's case, did not know his true identity. And like Jesus, Paul was associated with terrorists by a Roman official. As we get into Acts 21, I want that to kind of be your framework as we see some parallel stories here. Acts 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and then the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives 
and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the bench, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Don't miss this. That was a hard goodbye. As a former missionary who has had a lot of hard goodbyes in airports, that's a, that's a hard departure. That's a lot of tears and a lot of hugs and a lot of we want to see you again and a lot of please don't ghost. And Paul had endured this over and over again. And on an emotional level, I'm sure this was a difficult departure when you see little children saying, Paul, please stay. Don't go. Don't go. And yet Paul was intent on finishing this mission. It says, we said farewell to one another and then went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed. Again, another hard goodbye. We departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this and we the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem, Paul said, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, and on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That took some time, because Paul was saying he did this here, and that there, and this here, and that there. He had a long list of all the things that he had seen God do. And when they had heard this, they glorified God. Make a note, when people hear what God has done, worship is the response. It's a whole life response to what God has done. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed? And they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and to walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have said about you, but that you yourself live in observance to the law. I think Paul was picking his battles here and he chose not to get into it with them over the requirements of the gospel in this moment and just kept moving to all that. If you're curious about this vow, you can look up the Nazarite vow and it has to do with not eating and not drinking and not shaving for a certain amount of period of time. But go on, it says, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple and gave notice when the days of purification would be filled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together." How dare Paul bring a non-Jew into the temple, is what they thought. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. 
And as they were trying to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they, tro- they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Now, it's very important that you catch this. All right, he's caught in a mob, and he is choosing to act wisely in this moment. He's, he's picking his battle. Now, in Act 22, we're going to see that Paul's sermon to the crowd in Jerusalem is telling the people of his upbringing and background as a Jew. This role, his role in previously persecuting Christians, he's going to tell them about his dramatic conversion with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's going to tell them how Jesus speaks to him in the temple and his calling to the Gentiles. We're going to see Paul is placed in protective custody by Roman officials, where then he will reveal his Roman citizenship, and then the Roman commander will eventually transfer him to the Sanhedrin. So all of this is unfolding. I just want you to see in this chapter and in your life and in the world and in all of history, God is sovereign. He's working a plan that only he is able to do. Acts 22, here's Paul speaking to the Jewish crowd, and he's speaking in Hebrew, which for them, their their ears are going to be, they're leaning in. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And Paul said, I am a Jew, just like you. <laughs> I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and as the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who are there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's saying, on my way to Damascus to go and persecute more believers, I met Jesus. He says, I was on my way and drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand to those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. 
And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell in a trance and saw him saying to me, saw Jesus saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus says to Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, the Jews had been listening to Paul, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and clinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, beaten and tortured until he gives the right answer. And what do we see happen here? When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. When a Roman citizen gets punished unjustly, the people that punish unjustly are executed. They got right up to about to beat the life out of him. And Paul's like, time out. (laughs) I'm also a Roman citizen. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. The one who punished him bought it. But Paul said, look, I was born. I was born a Roman citizen. So those who were about to examine him, beat him, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound them. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. In Acts chapter 23, we're going to see that Paul is going to defend himself before the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling uh, leadership quorum of Jewish leaders. But you're going to see that one of the Jewish leaders, Ananias, orders Paul to be hit in the face. And then there's a sharp disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you want to think conservatives and liberals, over the idea of resurrection. The Pharisees will eventually say, hey, let's not fight against God. Let's not fight against God. We're going to see, again, God is sovereign, that Paul is rescued by a Roman commander and escorted in full military detail to another place. Now here, we look at this and go, this is chaotic. This is out of control. What's going to happen? And God is looking at all of time and space. He's looking at everything all at once, all now going, I'm sovereign. He sees it all, completely, totally in control of everything, everywhere. He's sovereign over this moment, and we're going to see just how sovereign God is. Acts chapter 23, after looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're going to hit me. God's going to hit you. Are you going to sit there and judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, 
that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in a council. He read the moment, he picked his battle, and he kept it about resurrection. He kept the key issue about an issue that they were already divided on because the Pharisees thought one way and the Sadducees thought another way. Paul picked his battle and wisely chose the moment, and he stayed to one specific issue. He says, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there was no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. Does that sound familiar? We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. There was a garrison of 500 soldiers nearby, and we see how this unfolds. But look at this next line. The following night, the Lord, Jesus, stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That word in Greek, take courage, it appears five times in the New Testament, and all five times is Jesus the one that is saying it. And I want you just to make note of that. This take courage or take heart or be of good cheer or be encouraged, it appears in Scripture at timely moments when Jesus is speaking into the hearts of people and into the lives of people who are under duress. In Matthew chapter 9, here's a story. It says, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, same word in Greek, take heart, be encouraged, take courage, be of good cheer, take heart, my son, for your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 9, 22, Jesus tells the woman with a 12-year bleeding issue, he turns to her and sees her, he says, take heart, take courage, be of good courage, be encouraged, daughter, your faith has made you well. In Matthew 14, Jesus sees his disciples completely frightened on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus speaks to them, same word, take heart, be encouraged, be of good cheer, take heart, for it is I. Do not be afraid. In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. Take heart, be encouraged, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And here we see Jesus telling Paul in the moment of about to be beaten to death, take heart, be encouraged, be of good cheer, because what you're doing here in Jerusalem will also be done in Rome. Paul had to know in that moment when Jesus is saying this to him that he was not about to die in Jerusalem, not then. And he knew that he would be carried on to Rome because the purpose of God could not be thwarted in Paul's life. In Acts chapter 24, we're going to see Paul's trial before Felix, where Ananias, the high priest, and other Jewish leaders have a lawyer present their case before Felix. Now, you're going to see this character Felix in just a moment. And uh, as we understand how Acts 23 unfolds, and as we get to Acts 24, I want you to know that, again, God is sovereign. He is sovereign. Now, it says this in 23.12, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. 
There were more than 40 men who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to not eat until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Hey, he's like, do this. Act like you're interested in more stories. There's 40 of us waiting to kill him. We're ready to take him out. Now, the son of Paul's sister, again, who is sovereign? God is. When the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and as he has something to say to you. So the tribune asked him by the hand, going aside, what is it you have to say? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire about something more closely. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, and don't say anything about it. Don't tell anyone that you informed him. And then he called two of the centurions, and he said, listen to this, get 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts or horses for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Now, we read that. We're like, man, that, that reads like a Mel Gibson movie. Truly. It's like, there's soldiers and spearmen and horses escorting Paul under military thing. But let me tell you, in God's sovereignty, who he's bringing Paul to. Felix, according to Roman history, according to Roman history, he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was known, this guy Felix was known to, quote, indulge in every license and excess thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity. According to history, Felix once ordered the massacre of a thousand Jews in Caesarea. If that wasn't enough, Felix, you're going to see in Acts 24 in a few moments, that Felix is one of his wives he seduced and stole from another guy, driven by his lust and his ability to be in charge of every situation. I just remind you, this is the power couple that God sovereignly is bringing Paul by Roman military escort to. That's not the way we would do it. God is sovereign. There are things in your life that would not be the way you would do it. And yet, God is sovereign, and he is working his plan. He writes this letter to Felix. He says, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greeting, verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, along with their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, he returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Paul was not suffering at this point. He was under protective custody. It says, after five days, the high priest Ananias, the same priest that caused Paul to be hit in the mouth, 
Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman or an attorney named Tertullus. And they laid before the governor the case against Paul. And when they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, now this is all flattery. This is pure flattery, which does not work. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since your foresight most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. The Jews then also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when Felix had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, this is Paul speaking, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify now that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship God, the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men accept themselves, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul says, look, the issue is that we disagree on resurrection. That's the only reason I'm here. They haven't found anything else on me. Why is Luke recording this? Again, to show for future readers that Christianity is not a threat to the government. He's documenting historically that Paul has conducted himself honorably. Now, Felix, keep reading. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, don't miss that. At this point, Felix has heard of Jesus, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. He's familiar with Christ's followers. It says, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he puts them off saying, hey, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. But look at the next line. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have freedom and that his friends should be welcome to come and attend his needs. Isn't that interesting? He puts off his trial, but look at this next line. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about their faith in Christ Jesus. Don't skip that. Here is this lust-oriented, power-hungry, corrupt Roman official with his stolen wife sitting in front of Paul, the greatest proclaimer of the grace and mercy of God. Tell us more. Tell us more. Now, I don't know if they believe, and it's not Paul's responsibility to save them, but Paul was faithful in the moment to proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done. Look at the next line. Look at the accuracy. Paul reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and about the coming judgment. In other words, he didn't hold back. I'm sure he said to Felix and Drusilla, the only righteousness you can really have is by grace through faith alone. Hey, the only thing that's really gonna set you free from the definite sin that you're living in 
is that you learn to live self-controlled and upright lives. Hey, and the only reason you're going to have hope for the future judgment is if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And here is Paul reasoning with sinful Roman leaders, faithful to the end, to bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. Felix was alarmed at those messages, and he says, go, go away for the moment. When I get a moment, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that some money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and talked often with him or conversed with him often. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by another leader and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Here's the thing. Paul was in prison, and he was writing. And the letters we read in the church today, while he was doing the Jews a favor, God was like, I'm going to do the world a favor and have a guy in prison proclaim the excellencies of Jesus and put in paper and on writing for generations to come the glory and greatness of Jesus. I just want to remind you this morning, prison doesn't stand a chance against the purposes of God. God is sovereign and good. There are two invitations for you today. Two things I want you to walk away with this morning. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He sees it all. He is able to work it all. John Piper says it this way. When we say God is sovereign, we mean he is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. Nothing can successfully stop any act or any event or design, or purpose that God intends to certainly bring about. I want to show you through the Word of God this same idea. Job 42, 2, this is what Job says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Daniel says it this way, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah says it this way through the voice of the Lord. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all I please. Proverbs 19 says it very simply. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6 says this, You rule over all the nations, of the, uh, over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Psalm 33 says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. I want you to think accurately this morning about God's sovereignty. Number one, God's sovereignty is governed by his wisdom. God is fully informed about everything forever. And he is all wise and knows it all. We can trust that. We can trust that his sovereignty is guarded by his wisdom. Romans eleven thirty three 33 says it this way, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. John Piper says, everything that is unsearchable and is unscrutable to us is governed by the deepest divine wisdom. 
God never does anything or allows anything whimsically that is in a meaningless way or randomly without an infinitely wise purpose. There is an infinitely wise purpose to the circumstances of your life. There is an infinitely wise purpose to what is happening in our world and in this nation. There are infinitely wise reasons, and we can trust that God's sovereignty is guarded by his wisdom. The second thing is that God's sovereignty is governed by justice and mercy, and not half-hearted justice, wholehearted justice. His sovereignty is governed by his justice and mercy. Isaiah 30 says this, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Piper comments, God never, never wrongs anyone. Some of you are doubting your faith right now. How could God allow this? Can I just remind you, God never, never does anyone wrong. All that he does is righteous and just, but even justice is not the final or highest aim of God's wisdom. Piper goes on to say, the ultimate aim of God's wisdom and sovereignty is that he be glorified for his mercy and grace towards undeserving rebels. He sovereignly planned and accomplished salvation for sinners by the death of his son. When you struggle to believe that God is in control, remember that he is wise, governed by justice and mercy. Remember that he is love. I think some people struggle emotionally when it's hard to believe God's sovereignty. And emotional doubt can creep in when we fail to see that God is sovereign, even in our suffering. And then our emotions, they, they carry us away. And in our hurt, in our brokenness, we're carried away to dark places. And in those dark places, we often do things and think things and see things and say things and choose things that we regret. And if you can have a handle on God's sovereignty, governed by wisdom, justice, and mercy, then when the emotions come in, you can think rightly about it. The other main idea I want you to walk away with today is that Christ comforts his people in and through their suffering because Christ truly knows what it means to suffer. I think sometimes we, we miss that. But I want to remind you, Paul, he was very familiar with suffering and also very faithful to Jesus. And suffering, heartache, hardship, physical pain does not mean that God is not there and that God is not at work. Christ is able to comfort his people. I'm going to show you that through the word of God this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we have had to endure. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life, our, uh, life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead. 
Paul goes on to write in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, it's not our strength, it's not our ability. What we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God said, let light shine out of darkness. He's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, so that, so that, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed through our mortal bodies. We live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by feelings. We live by faith and not by fortunes. We live by faith. If you are suffering, and I know people are, if you are grieving, and I know people are, if you are anxious, and I know people are, please do not forget that in the sovereignty of God, there is comfort for his people. And I just want to encourage fellow brothers and sisters who are walking with people are hurting. Just a friendly reminder, you as a Christ follower carry the presence of God with you. You carry the wisdom and the truth of God with you. You carry the compassion and you carry the mind of Christ with you. Don't shy away from people that are hurting because people that are hurting, even Christ followers that are hurting, can be so deep in the hole they can't hear or see truth. You, Christ follower, get in the hole with them. Be the presence of Christ for them. Speak the word of Christ to them. Be the presence of God with them. Show them the mind of Christ for them. And when they can't think and when they can't feel and when they are struck with fear or grief or sadness or anxiety where two or more are gathered in his name, he is there among you. So step into the dark places and step into the hard places places and step alongside people who are hurting with the humble confidence and the gentle mercy that God is near the brokenhearted and he just might use you to bring ministry and hope to someone who is hurting. Step in in the name of Jesus. Step in with the presence of God. Suffer alongside people who really are hurting and be comforted, just as Paul said, if we are suffering It's for your comfort. And when we are comforted, it's for your comfort. We live by faith and not by sight. Will you pray with me? Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at gracealburn.church.